This episode of The Fern Line is brought to you by The Hoarding Marmot, Anchorage's finest outdoor consignment shop, located in the heart of Spinard. The Hoarding Marmot has everything you need to get going on your next outdoor adventure, whether you're hiking, climbing, pack rafting, skiing, or more. The Hoarding Marmot also has a fine selection of maps, guidebooks, yummy trail snacks, and other odds and ends to fill out your kit, plus great prices to fit any budget. Make sure and stop by the Hoarding Marmot next time you roll through town, or check them out online at hoardingmarmot.com. This episode of The Fernline is also presented by the Alaska Rock Gym, providing quality indoor climbing to the Anchorage community since 1995. Alaska Rock Gym is a great place to keep your forearms strong and your mind centered any time of year. With over 20,000 square feet of climbing, an entire floor of boulder terrain, beautiful locker rooms, plus expanded cardio fitness and yoga rooms, Alaska Rock Gym truly has something for everyone. The gym is also working hard to prioritize your health and safety in this time of COVID-19. So to learn more, you can stop by any time to take a tour of the facility or check them out online at alaskarockgym.com. All right, let's get to the show. It's easier to stay alive if you know what's out there. Whether it's understanding local climate patterns, snow conditions, or predators that inhabit certain areas, having even a basic understanding of what lies ahead could be the difference between having a great day out and not coming home at all. And that's the philosophy behind Emma Walker's Dead Reckoning, which comes out June 1st on Falcon Books. Dead Reckoning is an honest, gritty, and sometimes gripping collection of close calls and accidents in the outdoors. Her compelling narrative nonfiction covers stories and topics, ranging from hiking and mountaineering to sea kayaking and backcountry skiing in a style that's accessible to readers of all experience levels. At the end of each chapter, Emma distills lessons learned for staying safe in the outdoors, all with a relatable, sometimes self-deprecating, and occasionally vulnerable twist. I recently caught up with Emma to talk about her book, why she wrote it, and who it's for, as well as digging into the creative process of being a writer and just a creative person. All that today on this episode of The Firm Line. So I grew up in the Front Range in Colorado, a little west of Denver in a little town called Golden, which is now called Arvada, and it's the suburbs now, but it wasn't when I was growing up there. So that's been strange going home and seeing how the place where I grew up has changed. I, I'm sure a lot of people have a really similar experience when they when they go back home. But, you know, I'm, I'm really lucky that I've been really close to my parents, and I grew up basically getting to try all kinds of different things because it was just me and my parents. So I got to take horseback riding lessons as a kid. That was kind of my primary way of being outdoors actually was riding horses. You know, and I think that was sort of the the first like big interactions I had with the natural world where, you know, I grew up near great hiking trails and my mom has, you know, had me on skis since I was about three. So mm-hmm. I got to do a lot of sort of classically outdoorsy stuff like that. But Being a little kid and riding a horse is pretty magical to begin with, but Mm. then also to get to do these like 
kind of big trail rides where you're really, it truly felt like being in the middle of the wilderness to me. I'm sure it wasn't actually that far, but yeah, that was a really cool way to kind of slowly move through the natural world and get to observe all these things that were, you know, like much taller than a six-year-old or eight-year-old normally would have gotten to see. So I also did a lot of 4-H activities as a kid. So again, like a more kind of agricultural interaction with the natural world than I typically have thought about later in my career, you know, doing more of the, what we think of as being, you know, sort of REI outdoorsy pursuits. <laughs> um, so yeah for lack of a better explanation, but yeah, so that was kind of my first big interaction. And I think I just count myself as so lucky that I got to grow up with a view of Long's Peak and the Flatirons from my parents' house. And so those really incredible natural surroundings were kind of what inspired me to, as I got older and, you know, you actually have to start training for things instead of just being able to do like a half marathon off the couch or something so (laughs) um, but those beautiful scenes were kind of what inspired me as I got older too that's getting to be around beautiful scenery like that and sort of experience it up close and personally was really what inspired me to get and stay fit right right I guess some kids grow up and just their whole life you know they just kind of turn into like an outdoorsy person who might do like climbing or, or mountain biking or rafting. Um, but where did that really kind of start for you? Like where, where was there a transition where you're like, man, I'm like really interested in outdoor stuff, whether it's climbing or skiing or, or rafting. Um, maybe talk about that a little bit. I do really enjoy all those activities, but I've never been like super great at any of them, right? You know, like proficient, right? Like I can, I can get down just about any run at the ski area, but like, it might not be pretty, but you know, I can survival ski. So, you know, I, I've been doing a lot of those things since I was a little kid. Um, and you know, I like, I don't ski nearly as well as I should for somebody who's been on skis since (laughs) I was three, to be honest. Um, but, and I also, you know, I, I, was really lucky that my best friend in grade school, her dad had a rafting company, like a commercial, small commercial guiding outfit. And so I got to do a lot of that. And, um, but really where I started to, to be like, oh, I could do this like all the time was um, right after I graduated college, I went to CU Boulder. So just kind of stayed in the neighborhood because, um, you know, the whole thing about being an anxious and sensitive kid and later adult made it so I wasn't quite ready to leave home yet at 18. So I stuck pretty close. And then when I graduated, my parents had, they, my mom had heard of Knowles, which I had never, you know, even heard of. And I had been doing a lot of hiking and skiing with friends, but my parents gave me a Knowles course as my graduation present from college man, it was really scary. You know, I'm so glad I did it. Like it, I mean, I truly think it changed the course of my life, but I was really scared for a lot of the trip. And, you know, I spent the first couple nights like having trouble sleeping because I was really homesick. And um, (laughs) I even had, I had like a terrible reaction to what I think was probably bug bites. We were in the Beartooth Absorcas in the middle of a mosquito hatch in July. And so you can sort of imagine like the clouds of mosquitoes that, you know, swarmed around us as we got off the bus. I was like, oh my God, what have I gotten myself into here? Um, So I ended up having like a terrible reaction where like my eyes swelled shut like three days into the trip. 
And you know what though, after that, after that really scary moment where I was like, I mean, I was scared, right? Like I, I was having like a really scary physical reaction and um, fortunately Benadryl did the trick. And after that, it was way less scary. Cause I was like, well, what's the worst that could happen? I guess like that's about it. And I was fine. Yeah. So, um, and so, you know, I remember being on that trip and being like, man, if I ever make it home, I don't know if I ever need to go backpacking again. And then by the time I got home, I was like already planning my next trip and like meeting up with friends from this Knowles course. And that, I think that really, that was the moment that I was like, oh, you can do this as a career. It had never occurred to me before that like doing cool stuff outside could be like how I spent my time professionally. And so that was like a huge revelation to me. And really when I started to get serious about what it meant to be an outdoor professional. Very cool. So uh, I'm imagining that that has something to do with how you ended up coming to Alaska. Can you talk about how you ended up in Alaska? Yeah, um, you're right. It it was really like a direct result of that Knowles course. But right after that course finished, I, I had gotten my undergraduate degree in English Lit and also had gotten a, a teaching license. So I student taught for a semester right after. I mean, like to go from a month in this beautiful remote wilderness to being in a classroom nine hours a day. And then I was also waiting tables as a second job to, you know, student teachers don't make anything. So, um, right. you know, then I was like working until really late and man, I had no time to get outside. And by about halfway through that semester, I was like, there is no way I cannot, this can't be my life. So I started applying for graduate programs in large part because I just, I was always pretty good at school and I didn't really know what else to do. I wasn't really sure how else to make this dream of being outside more often happen. So I started applying to graduate schools and ended up getting into the APU MSOEE program, which is Master of Science in Outdoor and Environmental Education. I moved up there when I was 22. I had done a at the American Alpine Club, which was kind of my first outdoor industry experience. And then I moved up to Anchorage. Actually, I moved straight to Wasilla in July of that year when I was 22. So I was still kind of a kid, but I was finally ready to go a little farther from home. <laughs> Interesting. So how did you end up in Wasilla? Yeah, I, that, <laughs> that's been a really common question, as you can probably uh, imagine. <laughs> yeah. Um, I... You know, part of the MSOEE program takes place on um, an 800-acre former dairy farm in Palmer, which is, you know, just uh, next-door neighbors. Right. Um, and Wasilla is, was nearby, and it was pretty cheap housing to live there. I, I know why now that I lived there for a year. <laughs> um, so that's how I ended up in Wasilla. And I'm not trying to move back to Wasilla or anything, but also I could walk out my front door and see Pioneer Peak, so... You could do a lot worse. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, <laughs> absolutely. I guess I'm curious about the the educational pursuits at APU because it sounds like you were going to school for writing, but there was also outdoor elements weaved into that. So it was for outdoor education. So it's basically like the graduate version of the outdoor studies program at APU. Oh, I see. Okay. Yeah. Um, so so I. I did get to spend some time outside and I took like a, like a semester longer than most people do to graduate. Like graduate school lives up to the rumors. Like it, I didn't get to spend a ton of time outside, you know, as much as I wanted, but I did do some 
great field courses um, through APU. Yeah, that really, like I learned some really important skills and, you know, interpersonally and technical, you know, like that we talk about the hard versus the soft skills. And so I learned a lot of both of those things. Um, mm -hmm. But, you know, kind of the common thread throughout my whole adult life is, has really been as an educator. So I went into teaching in the first place in part because, you know, I come from a long line of teachers, my dad and both of his parents and like all of these people in my life have been teachers. And then I've, I've had some wonderful teachers who really made my otherwise very difficult high school years a lot better. So, mm -hmm. so that was sort of what inspired me to go into education. And then there is just something so magical about showing people how to do something or like being part of their first experience where they learn to trust themselves or, um, you know, there's so much magic to it and also like some science too, right? Like it's not, there are right. difficult parts too. It's not all fun, but that's kind of where this book came from too, is that I, you know, I was really interested in this long tradition of accident analysis that we have in the outdoor industry, right? Like I think we as an industry are really good about talking about and trying to understand what happened when something sad happens. And I was really interested in that and interested in the implications and, um, you know, really wanted to, to be part of that conversation. And, you know, I, I got to work a little bit on accidents in North American mountaineering when I was an intern at the American Alpine Club. And then I worked on a sort of snow sports version of that with the American Avalanche Association called the Snowy Torrents. And so I had worked on some of these other publications that are so valuable in that they're just like this wealth of knowledge of about what things have happened and, and the effects, um, the sort of the immediate effects, right? But a lot of it was really kind of inaccessible, I think, if you're a newcomer to this stuff, right? Like I remember picking up accidents in North American mountaineering as like a 21-year-old brand new climber who had like been top roping three times, right, at the crag with some friends. And I literally didn't understand what, like I couldn't picture what was being described in a lot right. of these accident reports. And so I, like when I put it down then, I was like intrigued, but you know, vaguely terrified, you know, and I wasn't, I didn't feel like more equipped to be safe. And so that has stuck with me all these years. And I, you know, the reason I wrote this book is because I wanted to continue that tradition of accident analysis in a way that's accessible to people who aren't already experts, if that makes sense. Well, yeah, I actually think that's a good segue into talking about the book, because one of the things that I have picked up and anybody will pick this up just from reading the introduction is that the book is like equal parts storytelling, history, science, accident analysis with what appears to be like a pretty enjoyable and compelling personal narrative weaved throughout it, um, uh, like the American Alpine Journal and also the accidents in North America. You know, it's really clinical writing. It's, you know, it's it's very not dry necessarily, but it's, there's not a lot of storytelling. There's not a lot of personal narrative. It's all just kind of the facts laid out and, um, which is, which is valuable, you know, if you're, if you're really into it, but, um, I think it's refreshing to see a different take on that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, of course, like that, that is really valuable all of this writing that is that already exists is incredibly valuable and is a really important part of the 
this tradition, like this canon of accident analysis. I think also, especially for people who haven't necessarily had a ton of experience yet, just reading about accidents in these really clinical terms makes it a lot easier to kind of divorce yourself from the possibility of it happening to you. And right. I think the first few times that occurred to me were, you know, the first few times that I read an accident report in, you know, in the AAC's accident journal that that was about someone that I knew. And I knew how deeply affected and how sad the people were who knew this person who had died. And, you know, so it was really hard to reconcile this really clinical sort of dry writing that, you know, was in the style that it, you know, that they asked people to submit, right? And and then thinking about like our mutual friends and, and the grief that everyone was dealing with was like really hard for me to, I was like, oh, it doesn't quite capture it, right? You know, if I was just somebody who had never met this person or who had never met our mutual friends who were no, now grieving, I would, you know, read it and be like, oh, how sad that that happened. But like, you know, here are the mistakes that he and his partner made and not like humanize that person in any way. And it wasn't anything about the accident report, you know, that was like wrong or that didn't capture everything. It was just that I realized that understanding more of the story and like hearing more about the long-term aftermath was really important to understanding why it's so important to be careful and why there are farther reaching consequences than we expect. And so it was really tough to read the first time that I read an accident report that involved people I knew. Yeah. You know, one of the things that climbers fall into, and I could even speak for myself, you know, in my younger days, you know, maybe thinking that I was like hot shit that, you know, oh, that stuff happens to other people, even though I've had multiple friends who've died in the mountains and it was, you know, it's devastating to go through that. Uh, but still, you know, I thought, ah, oh, that's never going to happen to me or uh, that was a fluke. Now I could see myself picking up your book and reading it, even with all the experience I've had as a climber. And I feel like I could pull valuable information and also probably relate to the stories in your book. And I was wondering if maybe you could talk about that, like why your book might be important for maybe more beginners who are interested in, in the outdoors and or climbing all the way to people who are really like veteran climbers and alpinists. Um, what could they get out of your book? Thank you. That's a great question. I think this sounds sort of funny to say, but I think I am pretty relatable, right? Like I'm a pretty average athlete and like I have a lot of experience in terms of years, but I also know that I have so much to learn still. And so I think, and I, I've been told a lot that I write like I talk. And so I think it's hard not to be disarmed by someone who's being really honest with you. And I've been really honest in this book, including a few things that like, I'm not super proud of, right? Like I, sure. I've done, done plenty of dumb shit in my, in my years as an outdoor professional. So, but I'm honest in this book and I've really, you know, I'm really fortunate. There are so many things that I've done or that haven't done that could so easily have ended in tragedy. And I'm just, I just got lucky. Or maybe I did a few other things right, and so things didn't go off the rails as badly as they could have. But I look back at some of the stuff that I have done, some of it just kind of like 
rookie mistakes and some of it like, oh my God, I can't believe I did that. And as I look back, I'm like, man, I, it's like pretty lucky that I didn't end up in like way deeper trouble than I could have. And so I think my hope is that even folks who are more experienced, like I think I've I think it's pretty clear how folks who are more beginners can benefit from a book like this, right? It's like I've tried to distill lessons at the end of each each chapter so that there's sort of some digestible takeaways. And I've tried not to use a ton of jargon or, or explain it when I do. And so I think if you're a relative newcomer, my hope is that this book will be very accessible to you. But mm-hmm. for folks who are more experienced, I think my hope is that hearing another pretty experienced person be sort of vulnerable about experiences or or bad choices or things, you know, sort of examine, do the, the postmortem when things haven't gone wrong. I think that's mm-hmm. a really valuable lesson that a lot more experienced people should be doing. Like, I'm really fortunate to have some very cool avalanche professionals as my mentors. And so I'm constantly picking their brains to try to understand, like, how do we avoid accidents? And I'm like 99% sure this is in the chapter on avalanches, but you know, it all kind of blurs together at some point. Right, um, but, right. you know, I, I quote a friend who is sort of the keeper of the accident database at the Colorado Avalanche Information Center, who, who basically has said like, after your day out, you need to have a debrief, not just if something went wrong, but even if everything went like exactly as you thought it would, even when things went right and you all are just back you know, drinking a beer on the tailgate, go over your day and think about how things could have gone differently or like, did we do it right? Or did we just get lucky? And it's so easy to forget to do that. You have this awesome day. That's why we all do it, right? Like we are all out there because we want to have these joyful experiences. And it's the moment where you're getting the perfect powder turns and it's a bluebird day and everything's going right. Like that's why we're doing it. So it's really easy to just kind of ride that high into your next trip or into the night or whatever it is you're doing next. But I think taking the time to have that debrief afterward and truly look at, like examine the way you've behaved and the way that things have gone as a result, or or maybe there was no feedback. I think understanding that is something that more experienced folks could stand to do a lot more of. And so I hope that that kind of like vulnerability and honesty about times when I haven't done that will help encourage other people to have some accountability to also do similar things, if that makes sense. <laughs> yeah, awesome. Well, um, maybe we can switch gears a little bit. And I mean, I'm always interested in hearing other people's stories and how they create things. And, you know, first of all, I'm, I'm always really impressed when somebody has a book published. Like, I don't know, that just like blows my mind. It just seems like such a big accomplishment to to write to write something, have an idea, write it, and actually get it published. And can you talk about how that happened? Like, how, I mean, have you ever been published before? No, that's a really good question. And I think it would be really cool to have more transparency about this, like out in the world. So I'm right. more than happy to talk about it, yeah. So. A little bit of background on just my writing career. I've worked as a freelance writer for, um, I mean, off and on a little bit in like from grad school on, but I started doing it full time about four years ago. And I was mostly doing, like I 
written a lot of magazine articles and what we call content marketing, which is like, you know, where a, an outdoor brand has a blog and then you see, you know, the link that's like, sorry, that's, of course, right. my dog has decided to make noise right now. Like I was doing a lot of writing, but the first foray into the book publishing world was I had a, a friend of a friend who worked for Falcon, which is who's also publishing this book. And they were looking to do a second edition of, it was called Best Dog Hikes Colorado. And my really handsome dog, who's um, who's like itching right now and making jingly collar noises, is on the cover of that book. So oh, cute. Um, yeah, and he looks really adorable in it. So they basically needed someone to very quickly redo that book because it turned out that there were some inaccuracies, I guess, in the first edition, because they had like, there were a couple trails that had changed or something since the first edition was published and it needed a really quick turnaround. So I did it. Um, and I wasn't particularly interested in the subject matter. I mean, I love hiking and I love dogs, but I never, I didn't picture myself as like a person who was right. going to write a dog hiking guidebook. But I was excited to get my name on a book and get a little experience in the publishing world. And then once that book came out, I, you know, I'd had this idea for, for what turned out to be Dead Reckoning kind of kicking around in my head for a while. So I emailed my editor and she was basically like, thanks for the favor, redoing this other book. I will totally listen to any proposal you have. Cool. Yeah. So that was kind of like how I got my foot in the door with this publisher. And then Which, and that's how and that's how it goes. Totally. Like you, uh, you did the footwork and you made some connections and... Uh... I mean, that's, it sounds like a good lesson in the power of networking and being professional. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, I think so. And I think also like it was a good reminder that, you know, I think I, I often when I get asked the question about like, you know, how did you get a book published or like, it's so cool that you get to write a book. Um, and it is like, absolutely. But it also, it's not all just the fun parts, right? It's also like, um, <laughs> I got to, you know, it was cool to get to work on that book, but it was also a lot of work and it wasn't like my passion, but I, it was like right. totally worth it to me to do something that wasn't like my right. dream, um, in order to get to do this other thing that I was way more excited about. So right. good reminder, like we all have to do stuff we don't want to do sometimes. And there's part of that in every job. So, <laughs> yeah. um, yeah. So then basically I, uh, I wrote a proposal for this book. There were like probably six months of back and forth with the proposal. And then I got a contract. So the way it works in book publishing is you get what's called an advance. And so it, it, this was a quite a small advance It you know, I'm not like not getting ready to like buy a vacation home or anything like that. <laughs> right. Um, so I got an advance for this book. And then um, the way authors are paid is um, you, you make royalties on the copies that are sold. So the first the first royalties will like my advance is an advance on the royalties that I would make. So like I have yeah. to sell a bunch of copies on this book before I get any checks. You know what I mean? So please buy my book, everyone who's listening. Um, right. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. So that, I mean, like that's kind of the long and short of the process of publishing. Um, and then I will admit that I had this moment when I got the contract, you know, I like celebrated as, you know, once I got the news, I was like, so psyched and then the next day it kind of dawned on me like oh shit like I have to write this book now yep. <laughs> it was it was a lot of work yeah it was like um my yeah. my mother-in-law is a 
uh, quite an accomplished poet. And she said to me once, you know, everyone, everyone wants to have written a book, but nobody wants to write a book. Mm -hmm. (laughs) It's so true. Yeah. 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 I mean, obviously, like, you know, I have to do, well, I've always been interested in writing. Um, You know, I guess I've dabbled in it just kind of personally. I've never, like, haven't published, maybe I've published one or two, like, stories or something, but uh, I've always been interested in it, but I've never been great at it. I don't have, like, formal training, and I have to do a lot of, like, script writing now for other podcast work that I'm doing, and it is so challenging. If I'm working on something that involves writing, like storytelling, I mean, that's where I spend all my time. All of it goes into that, and it is such a trudge. Like, I I just am blown away by people who I see as, like, good writers. Or, like, people, like, I just read, like, a a really exhaustive investigative journalism piece in Outside Magazine. And I just, I'm just so impressed by people who can write that way. And in my mind, I'm like, oh, they probably just, like, whip that out because they do it all the time. But really, that's not the case, is it? (laughs) No, no, I'm sorry to disappoint you. It feels like a trudge for me, too. (laughs) Yeah, it's really hard. Yeah, Writing is so hard. It is. And it's probably, I mean, I imagine you've experienced this in the same way with music, right? Like once something feels like work, it's work, right? And there are things that you have to, it's like, even when you're not feeling inspired, you still have to get something down. Yeah. And I think yeah. that like with any creative pursuit, that's so true. Like I I think I have a pretty sort of blue collar work ethic when it comes to writing, mm-hmm. right? Of just like you just got to do it. And some days you're feeling really inspired, but that is not most days for me. Like I wish that every yeah. day I could just have like a 4-hour block of time where all I have to do is work on like my latest passion project, but the reality is we all have lives right like that gets in the way and (laughs) you know and also like I have to work on stuff that pays me more right that I so I can afford to like live as a human but I think it's like a similar thing that I've heard from all the creatives and artists that I know is like sometimes if you're lucky you get a day like that or a period in your mm. life like that where it's just like man it's just, I can't write it down fast enough it's just like coming out of me but most days it's just like getting up to grab another cup of coffee and like refreshing your email and right like there's all these other little distractions and you just eventually have to buckle down and get something on the page even if it feels like total drivel and like you can always come back and fix it up later mm-hmm. but most of the time it's just you just kind of keep trudging through and it's like any any job right you just have to set deadlines and break it into manageable chunks and get it all down and then we'll see right yeah there's a couple thoughts that come up for me and like one of them you know and this is kind of coming from my own personal way I can relate to what you're talking about is uh, you know what I've learned over my I guess my music career, which has evolved into uh, an audio career, you know, like doing podcast work a lot, is that, you know, you can be the most talented musician, you know, you could be, you know, you could just like get on stage and just blow people's minds. Uh, And that's one part of it. But in this day and age, if you don't have like basic organization skills, if you don't have the discipline 
to get up every day and put in the basic work, the foundation work that goes into all the other components of that career, like the chances of you being successful are pretty diminished. And uh, that, that's a big lesson that I've learned in my, my own life uh, and kind of into the career I'm doing today is like, you know, there's some days that are just, uh, it's like blue collar, <laughs> like you said, it's yeah. like, you got to put in the work and, you know, and I've even talked to, that's the same with like alpine climbers and climbing for like training and all that stuff. It's like, you got to do the work. You have to do the footwork uh, if you want to be successful. And uh, I think that that's something that's important for people to hear in general, honestly. Yeah, totally. <laughs> you know, it's like, like there's not a lot of things that are for free in, in, in the world uh, when it comes down to it. Exactly. And I think it's one of those things that like I kind of liken it to being really good at a sport in high school and thinking that you're just going to play that sport professionally. Like, sure, that happens for some people. But for most people, like, you maybe want to have something else that doesn't make you miserable to spend most of your time doing, right? And, like, also, I think there's... And this has come up for me with writing a little bit, but also with, like, being an outdoor professional, too. It's, like, when something becomes your job, it's easy to kind of take the joy out of it, right? Like, I guess there are those lucky few people who just love every minute of it, right? Like, um, I'm sure this isn't true, but like Joe Stock always seems like one of those people to me. I'm just like, man, Joe just loves his life. Like that dude is having (laughs) an awesome time. And like, you know, his clients are lucky. His students are lucky. He like, that dude just is like always having a great time. Um, He's always got a smile. He does. Right. And, but like for most of us, like I always aspire to like a Joe Stock level of joy for sure. But the reality is like, for a lot of people, and like I bet, I've never seen him on one, but I bet Joe has bad days too. I don't know. I'm sure he but does. But I think uh, I think some of it too is just like, for most of us, the thing we do professionally and the things we do for fun, like it, they don't have to be the same thing. And it's okay to just, honestly, I've been enjoying, I've been enjoying a lot of my outdoor activities a lot more now that I'm not like doing them professionally all the time because I can just do what I feel like doing and go as long as I feel like going and try new stuff and not feel pressured to keep up with a group or plan everything way in advance. Like I can just do the stuff I like doing for myself and I'm finding so much more joy in it now than I was. And, And same with like writing, right? Like often, even with this project, which I'm really, I'm really proud of how this book turned out, but working on it felt a hell of a lot easier when it was just like a passion project than it did once I had a contract and somebody was paying me to do it. So I think with all, with everything like that creatively or in terms of, you know, for climbers or for outdoor professionals, there is some element of that to keep in mind that like getting to do what you love for a living can be really awesome, but it can also change your relationship with that thing, which can be really hard. Yeah. How important uh, was it for you to get critical feedback during the process of of writing the book? Because I'm a very sensitive person, it's really hard for me to get feedback, honestly. (laughs) And even when I know that it's coming from like a really good place or, or when I know it's true, it, you know, it's, it's just hard to hear, right? Like it's always hard to hear that people think that you could have done something differently or better. Um, right. And I think some of it is that, 
you know, before I tried to write a book, I had done a lot of other writing. And so I had definitely gotten a lot more um, experience with getting feedback and taking it, you know, like making it into something instead of feeling frustrated or discouraged by it. Like I, um, like Stephen King in his on writing, which is if you're looking for like advice on how to write more or better or at all, I can't recommend it highly enough. It's super entertaining. And like, I mean, none of us can be Stephen King really. Right. But like, he has a lot of really good advice. And one thing that has always stuck out to me in that book is that he, he had like a nail on his bedroom wall that he pinned all of his rejection slips to like back when they used to do paper rejection slips, it like eventually fell off because it was so weighted down by his paper rejection slips. And then it turned out he was Stephen King. Right. So like stuff like that is like it, I don't know that I'm sure that's a true story. Right. But like, you know, you hear about that. Like, I'm sure there's a story about Hemingway with that or whatever, but that kind of rejection is at some point you just like learn not to take it personally because not everything is right for everyone. And that's okay. Um, and so I've also, you know, I've worked with some, I've worked with some okay editors who didn't give me a lot of feedback and I've worked with some great editors who gave me a lot of feedback that was really hard to hear. And like, those are the people that I'm so fortunate to have worked with because I think they made me a much better writer and storyteller. So, um, it's, I don't like it, but I know I need it. (laughs) Yeah. I, I am with you. Uh, and all I can say is that, you know, there's times where it's like, listen, if you don't want feedback, then you might just have to kind of do something on your own. And, you know, again, you got to live with it. Uh, it's just, it's two different ways of approaching things. I, I can certainly say from personal experience, um, there's been times where I definitely should have sought out some critical feedback uh, because, you know, there's a lot of things that I have put out there into the world where I, I can't listen to them now without cringing. And I think that's actually worse than getting some tough feedback. So. I think that's true. I mean, I, I hadn't thought of it that way, but I know a lot of writers who refuse to read anything they've written after it's published. And like, mm-hmm. I kind of get it, right? Like I, yeah. even when I've gotten good feedback, once it's kind of set in stone, so to speak, it's hard to go back and be like, oh, yeah, I probably could have asked a few more people what they thought before I put that out into the world. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, um, one of the other questions I wanted to ask you uh, specifically about the book was for whatever reason, you know, whether it was a personal reason, uh, whether it was a, a technical writing reason, what was the hardest, uh, story for you to write in the book? Um, yeah, that's a tough question, right? Because so many of the incidents I describe are like a really, really bad day for somebody you know, I'm borrowing this expression from one of the Snowy Torrens authors, but it's, it's the worst day of somebody's life. And it's like heavy, right? Like I read about a lot of really sad stuff that happened. Um, some of it preventable and some of it not. And so that, okay, that's, that's my lead in, like it, it all is bad. But, um, the one that I think really hits me the closest to home and the hardest is the summer that I was training to be a raft guide in Colorado, um, a little boy fell out of his boat on a commercial trip on the Arkansas River and drowned. And he was like 11 years old. And that story 
really struck me at the time and it has continued to stick with me to this day. Like it's hard for me to think about it without kind of choking up because, you know, this little guy was from the same part of Denver that I grew up in and he was the same age that I was when I started doing raft trips on the Arkansas. Like I saw a lot of parallels. And so I think, you know, seeing yourself in someone that something has happened to makes it, of course, like easier to relate to them. And just like, you know, hearing about this sweet little boy whose parents had to bury their child and who, you know, he was like so loved at school that after he drowned, his school installed what they called a buddy bench on the playground where little kids who were feeling lonely could go and sit to indicate that they like needed a friend and like another kid would come over and sit with them. And like, that's a hell of a legacy to leave behind at 11 years old, you know? Yeah. And so that story really hit close to home for me at the time that it happened. And it continues to really be, um, it really is important, I think, to remember what happened in part because, you know, as an outdoor professional and often also as you get more experienced, even if you're not doing it professionally or maybe bringing friends or a partner or family members out with you, but there is this really weighty responsibility that I think it's really easy to forget when things feel kind of low stakes. And when we take people into the wilderness, we truly a lot of times are taking their lives into our hands. And I think if this little boy's family had had any idea what was going to happen to him or what the risk truly was, they never would have put him on that boat. And so I think, you know, if I had to distill the reasons that I wrote this book into kind of one incident, I think like educating people about what it is they're up against or what the risks potentially are, that's that's it, right? Like, I think it's really important that people know what could happen, not to scare them away, but because I think you can make better and more informed decisions that you can feel good about if you have all the facts. Right. Yeah. Thanks for sharing that. Um, yeah, I just have a couple more questions slash topics I wanted to touch on, but like, who are your most important influences for writing? I guess just in general and also how it relates to dead reckoning. Yeah. Okay. So let me think a little bit about who I've, who I was reading a lot of, um, as I was working on this, you know, I think a lot of my writing really started from less a place of like adventure writing and more a place of kind of nature writing. So, I mean, I definitely would list Aldo Leopold and Terry Tempest Williams up among my bigger influences. They obviously are both really important parts of the nature writing canon. And I think that connection to nature is what makes anything else that I would write relatable. So I would definitely list them among my, my biggest influences. And, you know, I, like I reread Sand County Almanac every spring. Yeah. Those are two, you know, important ones, I guess. And I think like so many people who have spent time in Alaska, I've read a lot of crack hour. And so I certainly, you know, I really, a thing I like about him is that he's very vulnerable and, and honest in his writing. And so I, um, I really like that and have, you know, continued to be obviously impressed with like the quality of his writing, but also like his ability to transport you to a place. And so that's something I think I've always, yeah, yeah. I mean, he's a great writer. one of the best <laughs> for sure. And so he's someone that, yeah. you know, I've always really tried to emulate. And then, you know, I think 
beyond that, I think, you know, I think about a lot of my influences and a lot of them like aren't really related to outdoor writing at all. Right. Like I. So, so now we're getting into the realm of quote unquote guilty pleasure reading. Yeah. <laughs> yes, totally. Um, um, I like I don't think like my I, I don't know if it's a guilty pleasure. Probably. I love David Sedaris so much. And I like I just it feels like going home to read a collection of his essays right and like I've seen him read so many times that like I can I can almost read it in his voice now um and so that's a big one for me is it just like something that just is funny and feels good and even like he covers a lot of like actually pretty heavy subject matter right but it's like there I'm, I'm gonna listen to this later just so you know and be like oh I should have said this person like yeah. um but I guess like the, if that's what comes to my mind, like, I guess that's what right. it is. Yeah, no, no, totally, <laughs> totally. And then so I always like to ask writers, like, you know, what would you say would be the most important kind of, I guess, advice or suggestions or maybe like a toolkit that you could give anyone who is an aspiring writer or somebody who would want to maybe dip their toes into creative writing? Yeah, not even creative writing, just writing in general. Yeah. Well, Evan, I am happy to dispense unsolicited advice. So here we go. Yeah. I think the thing that so often stops people from writing, like a lot of the people who have asked me a similar question is that it just, it feels really daunting and overwhelming. Like I know so well, the really bad feeling of like looking at like rereading something you've just written and being like, Oh, this is so dumb. I hate it. Like <laughs> That happens to me all the time. So I think um, some of it is like, this is probably the most cliched writing advice is to just keep writing, like just get something down on the page. But it's the reason everyone says it is because it's true and it's really good advice. So um, I would start there. And then I think like where I, and this is coming from someone who like my career has kind of been based on writing like I talk. So maybe take it with a grain of salt, but what makes writing that people want to read isn't necessarily like technically perfect writing. Like any editor can clean up writing so that it's technically better. But what makes writing that people want to read is a story. And so I think instead of trying to like outline your beginning, middle and end, or like instead of trying to cram it into a structure that it may or may not fit into, I think my best advice would be to tell a story as if you're sitting around the campfire with friends. What would you tell your friends if they asked you what happened on this trip that you just did? That's the story you want to write. I think including the details that you would tell your friends to make them laugh or to try to transport them to the place that you just went to or you know, it's these, it's these little details, the things that like really personalize something and make it your own that make a story that people want to hear. And so I, when I'm writing, I'm almost always imagining my reader. And like, that's a, you know, I do some marketing work on the side to make a living. It's not on the side. That's what I do for a job in order to make a living mm -hmm. because books yeah. unfortunately don't pay the bills. Um, yeah, yet, hopefully so I, and so the number one thing that we always think about in the marketing work I do is it's your audience. Like that's the first, that's always where you want to start. And it's the same thing with writing, right? Like you're just, if you want to write a story that people want to read, you have to think about those people and what they want to hear. And so the audience that I'm writing for, I'm 
fortunate that like I'm friends with a lot of people who are really similar to that audience. So it's really easy for me to picture my friends reading whatever it is that I'm writing. And I can almost like I've written and I've written many, many thousands of words at this point. Right. So like I've kind of gotten to the point where I can imagine like what's going to make them cringe or groan versus what's going to like elicit a chuckle. So I think starting there and and then just knowing also like, you know, we were just talking about feedback and like just knowing that you can't everything isn't for everyone. Right. And so like telling the story that's important to you or that you're going to feel proud of is way more important than trying to please everybody. Anything that pleases everyone is probably boring. Right. So why bother? (laughs) I say that, but I also like this is the scary part of writing a book. Right. Is that soon people are going to actually start reading it and it's out in the world and it's like very personal. So I'm I'll be honest, I'm pretty nervous about that. (laughs) Yeah. Well, It'll be okay. (laughs) Thank you, Evan. I appreciate (laughs) that. (laughs) Older Road, my dear friend. All right. Well, thanks for hanging out with me today. I hope you got as much out of Emma's stories as I did. And I hope you can apply some of her outdoor wisdom to your next trip in the mountains. To pre-order Dead Reckoning, head on over to emmawalker.com slash books or inquire with your local bookstore, Amazon, or any other place good books are sold. If you enjoy The Fern Line, please consider leaving a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. And if The Fern Line adds value to your life, you might consider becoming a monthly subscriber over on patreon.com slash the Fern Line. And speaking of Patreon, I want to give a huge shout out to Leo Franchi, who supports the show each month at the executive producer level. Thanks a lot, Leo. Oh, and one more thing. If you dig the tunes you hear on the show, you can check out more of my music on Apple Music, Spotify, Bandcamp, or evanphillipsmusic.com. All right, take care of yourselves, be well, and we will catch you in the next few weeks on The Fern Line. I'm never far behind Cause we got things we need to do There's stormy weather blowing through I can't imagine losing you My dear friend My dear friend, my dear friend.